All right, Philemon, second week in Philemon. Remember that we're coming to a real letter written by a real man to another real man. This is a historical event that occurred. Sometimes from this many years removed, it is easy to just look at it like you would uh, something under a microscope on a Petri dish and just kind of look and say, that's interesting. But it's more than interesting. It's the living Word of God in the life of a man writing to another man who's living his life following the Lord Jesus Christ about another man who's a man of God. And so as we approach it, uh, let's give it the attention that it is due as the Word of God. So last week we began a two-week study on Philemon, and we looked at the lives of three men, and we'll continue doing that today. Uh, All three men had their lives transformed by salvation in Jesus Christ. Paul, the former former persecutor of Christians, Philemon, the well-off businessman and slave owner, and Onesimus, the runaway slave. Those were the three men that we were primarily concerned with in the letter. So one man, a religious, zealous leader in the Jewish sect, who then became a persecutor of Christians, then became born again, became a preacher of the Word of God, a fairly wealthy businessman who owned slaves, and a criminal slave, a runaway slave, All drastically different human beings, but what they had in common was the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I mentioned last week, that is what unites us. That's what we have most in common. The overarching idea of our study, what we wanted to focus on was just to look at the three lives transformed. The power of change that comes by salvation in Jesus Christ. And then, of course, we have Dr. John Kyle's question, what about you? There's many things in the letter that we can ask ourselves about, and the Holy Spirit will do that for you. Um, And if I have a John Kyle moment, I will remind you myself, what about you? Uh, Because I'm not very creative. On the creative meter, you know, goes like this. I'm not very creative. So it's the same outline last week and this week. Uh, Greeting, the character of Philemon, the plea for Onesimus, and then the greeting of these others that are with Paul in the benediction. So let's review where we were. We looked at the greeting, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Appia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul writes a letter. He writes a letter as a prisoner of Christ, not of life circumstances. That's important. He's with Timothy, his spiritual son, when he writes the letter. He's writing to Philemon, who he calls beloved. And we learned last week that when he says, you are beloved, it means both he's loved of God and he's loved of Paul, and he's a fellow worker in the faith. His wife and his son, Appia and Archibus, the fellow soldier, are also in service of the Lord. They hosted a church in their home. And then Paul gave his characteristic greeting, grace and peace. He just wants God's grace poured upon them, and he wants them to know calm in the midst of any storm. So we looked last week at the greeting, and then we looked at Paul's description of Philemon as he wrote to Philemon. He says, Philemon, this is what I know about you, verse 4. And he's three words that are key, by the way, in the way he approaches Philemon. He says, I'm thankful for you, I'm prayerful for you, and I'm joyful because of you. I'm thankful for you, I'm prayerful for you, and I'm joyful because of you. 
I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and towards all the saints. I pray the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. So Paul says uh, he prays for Philemon and gives thanks for him. Then he tells us why he gives thanks. Specifically, he gives thanks for Philemon because he's hearing reports that Philemon loves the Lord and that love for the Lord leads him to love all of the saints. This is biblical, correct? Jesus in Matthew 22, when the lawyer came to trick him and ask him a question and he said, what's the greatest commandment? He says, to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says, Philemon, I'm thankful for you because you love the Lord and you love others. It's biblical. It's, it's how we're to live our lives. He says that he prays for Philemon, that the partnerships, the fellowship he has with other Christians would be effective. And then he tells Philemon this. Imagine Philemon receiving the letter from the man who led him to the Lord who is now in prison. And Paul says, I receive much comfort and joy from you. What a blessing to be able to provide joy and comfort to a man who's been imprisoned, who led you to the Lord. And he says, because your ministry brings refreshment to the saints. And we learned last week that the word refreshment means an intermission from life's labor. From the stresses and the challenges of life, refreshment is a word word that means there is a pause and there's an intermission from that. And Paul says, this is Philemon what your ministry is. Because of the way you live your Christian life, others get an intermission from the challenges of the day. Boy, that's a high calling. Would you like that on a bumper sticker on your car? The driver of this car gives an intermission to my labors. Wow, what a blessing. And then we came to verse 8, and there's that word, therefore. Mentioned last week, this letter's going pretty well, but then when there's a therefore, you're not really sure what's going to happen next. So therefore looks back at everything he just wrote in those first seven verses. And he says, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, and Philemon must be thinking, well, of course I'll do what's proper. What is this now about? He might have known, depending on the deliverer of the letter. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, aged and now also a prisoner of Christ. So, As we said last week, Paul could have ordered and demanded based on his role as an apostle and leader in the church that Philemon do what he was asking, but he doesn't. He appeals based on love. And in the three verses, uh, 9, 12, and 13, we see Paul's appealing on the basis of love from the heart and selflessness. So he doesn't demand, but he appeals for this thing that he is going to ask. So what is the appeal? Before we get there, I mentioned last week, or I asked the question at the close, who delivered this letter? We don't know for sure, but what is believed is that Philemon and Colossians, the letter to the church at Colossae, was written at the same time. Believed that Philemon's home church was in Colossae, and these two letters would have traveled together. Listen to Colossians 4, 7 through 9. Tychicus will tell you all about my activity. So Paul's writing to the church, and he's sending this man who's going to inform them about what's been happening in the prison. 
He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant of the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So he says, I'm sending this man. He's going to tell you about what's going on with us, that you might be encouraged. And with him, Onesimus. Well, that's interesting. He's the runaway slave. This is in Colossians 4. With Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you? Meaning he's both from Colossae and he's a brother in the Lord. They will tell you everything that has taken place here. So it's very likely, Paul being Paul, when he sent them both, he had the letter in the hand of Onesimus. So when he knocked at that door at Philemon's home, and the door was opened, and he looked, there was the new creature in Christ, who has a new creature in Christ. What would he do? His first response would be to apologize and ask for forgiveness, and yet be prepared to accept whatever Philemon had in store for him, whatever response. It's all speculation. We don't know because it's not recorded. But it sure makes sense when we understand Paul and we read Colossians that he's sending them with these letters. Can you imagine the knock at a door? It brings us to the third point, which is the plea for Onesimus. Let's go to verse 10. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, who I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart. So please remember that slaves were not even legally considered persons at this particular time, but tools of their masters, and as such they could be bought or sold, inherited and exchanged. They could be seized to pay a master's debt. The master had virtually unlimited power to punish them, and sometimes did so severely for the slightest infractions. Paul says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. Everything just changed in the letter. The letter was a greeting and a reminder of what they had in common in faith and a therefore, and now it's an appeal. And the appeal is a word that means to exhort or to beseech. It's the word that you know in the Greek that is to call someone close. Right? So there's a picture being painted here when he writes the letter, call close. This isn't you're your in the room and your wife or your Son is at the other side of the room. You say, hey, while you're in the refrigerator, would you grab me a glass of water? It's not that. This is calling the same son across the room close because there's something very important you want to say. That's this word appeal. So Paul is saying to Philemon, come close. There's something I need to to say to you. Then he says, what I want to speak about is my child. Right? The one who is spiritually birthed. My child Onesimus, the one who was born again meaning he's his child because he was dependent on the preaching of Paul, of the gospel, for his salvation. He said who he had begotten in prison. Do you know what begotten means? It means to give birth in the original language. He came spiritually alive in prison based on the preaching of Paul. And Paul says, I appeal on behalf of my child who was birthed in prison. Philemon, can you imagine Every word, this is his spiritual father. And if Onesimus is there, as a scroll is being wound and he's looking at this slave who ran away and stole from him, who could be put to death. And Paul says, he's my child. Onesimus' name means useful, of profit or advantage. Do you see the play on words that 
Paul uses in the next verse, who was formerly useless to you, right? He was useless when he ran away. He was of no value, but now is useful. That's his name, both to you and to me. He's finally living up to the name Onesimus. Matthew Henry writes, one great evidence of true repentance consists in the returning to practice the duties which have been neglected. In his unconverted state, Onesimus had withdrawn to his master's injury, but now he has seen his sin and repented and is willing and desirous to return to his duty. Matthew Henry says one of the ways you can tell someone's truly repented and born again is their life changes. Things are different. And if in case they caused injury, they go and repair the injury. Although Onesimus would be useful to Paul in prison and likely was up until this point, Paul writes, I sent him back to you in verse 12. I'm not just writing to you about what happened to Onesimus, but he's face to face with you now. And you have a decision to make. He says, I am sending my very heart. This is how close Paul and Onesimus had become. I'm sending you my very heart. That's the word that talks about the gut, right? That gut level compassion, the the ability to feel emotion, sympathy, and empathy that comes. Something happens and you, you hear it or you see it and something happens on your inside. You know that feeling? We got a prayer request this week came to the church, and it was about a family who lost their, their relative, lost their baby. Right? You read it, and what happens on the inside? You're like, oh. I had a phone call from a friend who said, Joe, I don't know what to do. A friend called me last night to come to her house. Her son was killed in Vallejo. What do I do? Oh. Right? Something inside? Well, there's a positive side to that. And that's what Paul is describing. He's saying, my child begotten in prison inside. He's my heart. And I've sent him back to you. Do you have one of these? Do you know this description? Is there someone that you've shared the gospel with as part of your life and you've watched them be redeemed? And it changes everything. The way you look at them, the way you think of them. When I was studying this and working, you know, I'm, I'm writing and I'm studying this very heart. Right away, this name Roy popped into my mind. I put it on my notes in a box. I won't tell you all about Roy, but he looked like Yosemite Sam. In so many ways, he talked like him. I worked with him for a little bit. Knew him for 15 years. Shared the gospel with him over and over and over again. He would always approach me with questions, so many questions. He was really a smart man. And his questions would always start with, let me ask you, Alio. And then he'd have some deep thought about religion because he was studying them all. When he retired, I gave him a Bible and asked for only one thing, if we were truly friends, that he would read it. And he did. He was a ferocious reader and he read it. Over and over again. He read the Gospel of John. And then he started the Gospel of John again. And then he started the Gospel of John again. He would call me late at night after consuming beverages that caused him to slur his speech. And he'd say, let me ask you, Alio. And maybe 13 years into our 15-year relationship, 
He said, there's no doubt that Jesus Christ is Lord. I just don't know if he could save a wretched man like me. He goes, you know how I live my life. Would God really die for me? I began to believe maybe he was born again, but I wasn't sure when I went to officiate his memorial service in Idaho. A co-worker from here, from Fairfield, who was relocated there. First thing he said to me is, man, could you imagine the joy of where he has right now? No more suffering with cancer in the presence of the Lord. I'm like, Casey, I got to ask, are you sure that dude was saved? I go, it's Roy. And he said, uh, no doubt in my mind. One week ago today, one week ago before he died, not from that day, one week before he died, they had dinner together. And he said his profession of faith was clear. And he, in such humility, said, I can't believe he would save me. Man, inside, when Casey told me that, I could write what Paul wrote. That's, that guy's my heart. I guess my encouragement to you is be looking. Always, there are no hopeless cases. Always be looking for the opportunity to speak the name of Jesus to that one you think, you know, you 70 Santa, he ain't getting saved. And then he was. Paul's heart burned for the runaway slave. He wanted to keep him, it says verse 13 and 14, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. Onesimus might minister to him in prison. That's what Paul's saying. If he did minister to me in prison, he'd do it on your behalf because he's your slave. But he says, I'm not able to do that, Philemon, my friend, my beloved brother. Not without your consent or your free will. True reconciliation has to come. It can't come by compulsion. It can't come because I've asked you to. Real reconciliation occurs between real people. Right? With real emotions and real hearts, not by an administrative directive from one man to another. Remember when you would get your kids together and say, okay, hug each other, hug, make up. And they walked away. There was not a lot made up when they, when you told them to make up and they hugged. Directive decrees don't bring reunion and reconciliation. Real people face to face, willing to confess and converse. Paul knew Onesimus and Philemon needed to be together. Do you think there's a lot riding on this moment? If Onesimus is there, and they have a church in their home, people gather there, and everyone would be watching Philemon to see what his decision is, do you think a lot is riding on this decision? If he punishes him and even puts him to death, that teaches one reality. If he forgives him and welcomes him as a brother, that presents a different reality. So I think much is writing. When we have opportunity to forgive or not forgive, much is writing on those who are watching. Much was writing on this moment. In verse 15 it says, For perhaps he, uh, for this reason, was separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Especially to me, he draws his connection to him again. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. 
Do you see Paul giving the nod to providence? Perhaps. He says, perhaps. Providence is God's continuous involvement with all his created things. Continuous involvement with everything he's created, his providence. Paul gives a nod to that, but he does it this way. He says, perhaps, maybe. It seems like, doesn't it, that maybe he ran away for this period of time that he might be born again and return to you forever? Better than before? Not just your slave, but now your brother in Christ? Do you see the humility in Paul? Perhaps. Paul doesn't say, now, I want to tell you this, Philemon. That man left that, that house to come to this prison to hear me preach. It was the will of God. As such, forgive him. No, he just says, perhaps this is exactly what God intended. Do you remember Mordecai appealed to Esther in 4.14? For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. He says, God's going to do what he's going to do. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Perhaps. And then we found out the answer. You have to read the whole book to know the answer of Esther. So Philemon, Onesimus was gone for a little while so he could spend all eternity with you worshiping the Lord. Can you imagine Philemon trying to digest this? I've never had this happen to me. I don't know if you have, but an unsaved person who you had serious ought with returns and you see them again and they're born again. They love the Lord. I don't know that I've ever dealt with this. This is what Philemon is dealing with. There's no doubt people will sin against us. Life will be difficult and bad things will happen. The question is, do we trust the sovereignty of God enough to believe he will work all things out for good? Maybe even put us in the position to forgive and welcome one back who has hurt us. I think one of the things we learn in Philemon is we must be open to the possibility of reunion. And reconciliation. Because I think sometimes we close the door. We think things are too broken. And we just, we just close the door and move on. I'm sure that Philemon, when his runaway slave stole from him and ran away, at some point closed the door and just kept living and assuming that that man was all but lost. And then he's back. So Paul's transformed life places him in a role of mediator here. Paul's the mediator. We have Philemon and Onesimus. And right there in the middle is the mediator. I wonder if Philemon at all considered there was a time where he needed a mediator, and that mediator's name was Jesus Christ the Lord. I wonder if at all he considered Christ before the Father, saying, when you see Philemon... Don't see him as a useless rebel he was, but see him as I see him, bought with my own blood. You see, he is my very heart. I think when we have the opportunity to see someone as God sees them, this reunion of the two is so much more correct. Philemon reading every word of his spiritual father. Is this not a masterful letter? Is this not a way that we might approach problems in life? If we were to pause and say, 
What, what did he do? He greeted him with beautiful words. He spoke about the truth of their relationship and who Philemon was and is. He confirmed their relationship as beloved brothers. He begins the appeal not by demanding, but talking about his child who's useful, his own heart, that he wants to keep him but would never do that without consent. And then when we get to verse 17, he says, Accept him. If he owes you, charge me. By doing so, you refresh me. And by the way, prepare a room. I'm going to come check out how it all went. What a masterful letter writer. Verse 17, then if you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. Accept him as you would me. This, uh, this if we are is not maybe. This is not if as in maybe you do or maybe you don't. This is if and I assume you do regard me as a partner. That's how it's written in the original language. A word that means mutually belonging, sharing fellowship and companionship. They're co-laborers. Paul says, since that's who we are, receive him like you would me. Since we are in fellowship and companionship and co-laborers for the gospel, receive him as you would receive me. Accept Onesimus back. Welcome him. The word welcome is with strong personal interest. This is not Paul saying, bring him back and say to him, Paul says, I have to take you back, put on your apron and get back to work. This is strong personal interest. Not only is he his master, but he's his brother. Remember, real people. Philemon, a real businessman, suffered real loss. I had to ask myself, how would I respond? This is a plea from a Christian to a Christian to accept a Christian who has done wrong. Paul's plea is to forgive. Remember what... Spurgeon said last week, I read this quote, to be forgiven is such sweetness that honey is tasteless in comparison with it, right? Remember that time you weren't sure if you'd be forgiven and you were, and you're so relieved? He says it's better than tasting honey. He says, but there is one thing sweeter than that, and that is when you forgive another, right? When you've had the opportunity and someone has wronged you and you've been able to say, no, it's okay, I forgive you, and your relationship was restored. That's the sweetest of all, Spurgeon said. After the defeat of the Hitler's Nazis in World War II, Holocaust survivor Christian Corey Tenboom returned to Germany to declare the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. One evening, after giving her message, she was approached by a man who identified himself as a former Nazi guard at the concentration camp Ravensbrück where she, Corey, had been held, and where her sister Betsy died. When Corey saw the man's face, she recognized him as one of the most cruel and vindictive guards from the camp. He reached his hand out to her. He said a fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know, as you say, that all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there, but I would like to hear from your lips. Fraulein, will you forgive me? Corey writes about this encounter. I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again been forgiven, but could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? Could have been many seconds that he stood there with his hand held out, but to me it seemed like several hours. I wrestled 
the most difficult thing I ever had to do. I had to do it. I knew it. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus helped me. I prayed silently. As I reached out, as she reached out her hand to the former guard, Corey said something incredible took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang out into the joints of my hand. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I cried with all my heart. I had never known love so intensely as I did then. For even then I realized it was not my love. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. See, she points to the reality that forgiveness is an act of the will. And we're called to remain open to that. Here she was in a place, in a prison, and one of the guards who was most cruel in the place her sister died would not be a place that any of us would normally think, oh, there's the guard, I think I shall forgive him. But she recognized the truth of this word. And that forgiveness is an act of the will. And in forgiving... As Spurgeon said, it was sweeter than anything else she had ever experienced. The challenge is to remain open. In broken families and prodigal sons and co-workers who drive you insane, it's to remain open to the possibilities that he has, that we might act in the will that he calls us to. So far in this letter, Paul has not said to Philemon, do this. Forgive him, set him free. The reality of being set free, by the way, we won't spend time on this in that day, didn't guarantee a better life for a slave. But Paul didn't appeal or didn't demand that. He appealed to the heart of his brother for love's sake. Remember who I am and who you are. Remember the usefulness of Onesimus as a saved man. No, he has my very heart. I desire his help. You should desire his help. I respect your free will to decide on your own, Philemon. That's why I send them back to you. Perhaps God worked in all of this for this very moment. Oh, Onesimus is saved. He's a brother in Christ. Basically, Paul has said to Onesimus, don't see him as you used to, as useless, but as a brother, my son, who has my very heart. But if he has wronged you, verse 18, in any way or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand, I repay it, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self as well. Paul recognizes the reality of what has occurred, a real wrong, a real wrong with real consequences. This, these few words, owe anything, uh, makes theologians believe that he must have stole from Philemon to finance his trip in fleeing So not only would he owe him what he stole from him, but then there was the lost labor that he he owed him because he wasn't laboring as he should have. Paul says, charge that to my account. The word here is a technical term that means I'm prepared to stand for the damages. There's more to the story than financial loss. There's also the personal wound and the offense and the running away. Paul says, charge it all to my account, by the way. There was one man who went to a cross 
fully God and fully man and looked at your sin and mine and said, charge that to my account. Paul's exampling that. And then Paul, who likely had a scribe writing for him, says, I, Paul, it's as if he picked up the pen and dipped it in uh, into the stylus into the ink and pressed firmly and said, I, Paul. I, Paul, say I'll cover this. It's interesting, there's that little phrase there, not to mention. It's in the second half of verse 19. It might be in parentheses in your Bible. That little phrase, not to mention, means this, laying an argument to rest. So Paul says, let me, let me just put this letter to rest on the topic of Onesimus. Let me close this by reminding you that you owe me your life in the sense that it was the preaching of the gospel of Paul that allowed Philemon to be born again. He says, you owe me your life, your spiritual life. In verse 18, there's the word O, and in verse 19, there is the word O, and they are the same in the English, but they are not the same in the original language. In verse 18, where he says, if he stole from you and there's a dollar amount that needs to be paid, I'll pay it. It's the paying of a debt. Verse 19 is the word O, but it's to O besides, or in addition, it's the word super O, an intensified owing, a debt that is, is not like an average debt, it's a big debt. And so the debt of money is a debt indeed, but the debt of the salvation is the great debt in verse 19. Interesting, our language doesn't show it, but if you read them, read the definitions in the, de- in the both in the Greek, you see, yeah, if, 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 if there's money owed, I'll pay it. But this, your salvation came through our relationship. Wow. Paul concludes his appeal with verse 20 and a statement of verses 20 and 21. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. So Paul says, yes, brother. That word yes is a particle or assertion of confirmation, so it's better read, certainly, brother. Certainly, brother, let me benefit from you. He's saying to Philemon, do you know how I'll benefit from you? I'll benefit from you when you forgive Onesimus. I'll be refreshed by it, he says. Why will he be refreshed? Because from the moment he left the prison and went on the arduous journey all the way back to Colossae, Paul hasn't been at rest. He's had the toil of waiting. What will you do with my child? Have you ever sent your child on a trip? And they left your home and it took a day or two to travel and you waited to hear the news that they arrived. And when they did, you were refreshed. Okay, they're safe. This is his child sent. And he says, here's how you refresh me, forgive him. I like what John Gill writes about Paul having confidence in verse 21. <clears throat> having confidence and obedience in his obedience to the faith of Christ. That's where his confidence lies. His obedience in the gospel, having been made willing in the day of his power to serve him as well as being saved by him and being constrained by his love and the spirit of Christ, having wrought in him both to do his will and good pleasure. Gil writes, I wrote these things knowing that thou would do more than I could ask. 
The knowledge that the Apostle Paul had of Philemon's cheerful obedience to Christ in all other parts of duty encouraged him to write to him on this head, believing that he would even do more. So John Gill says, because Paul so knew Philemon's obedience to Christ in all other areas, he was confident that when this happened, that Philemon would say, yes, you are forgiven. And then he gives this last, I love this. Uh, By the way, I'm going to come visit you by your prayers. Keep praying for my release. That way I can come and see how your relationship is going with Onesimus, my child. I don't know if that was just a little pressure in case he needed to get pushed over the, the hump just a little bit. I don't know. But it is what he said. And then he gives this greeting from others with him. He says, Ephaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, greets you as do Mark. Uh, Aristocarchus, I, man, I said that ten times this morning. Demas and Luke, my fellow worker, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you and your spirit. So as Alistair Begg says, Paul was not a one-man band. He was in the ministry business, and his business was partnerships and fellowship and relationships. It's the gift of the body of Christ working together that brings glory to Christ and lost souls to salvation. There is such joy in being in the way of Christ with other believers. I mean, literally, I can sit here and I go, food, and I just go, food, children's ministry, uh, my home being converted for Katie to be able to come in and out in a wheelchair and have a shower she could wheel in. I mean, I can look across. I, I see a pastor who once put his arm around me in this room when he said, you're Joe Alio? Yeah. Do you have that home church? Yeah. And I thought to myself, this is a minister of ministers. He's going to slap me upside the head. And he didn't. He walked me around the parking lot of his church asking me questions and fellowshipping with me. And allowed me to call him any time. To ask him any question. There was a beekeeper in our presence. I mean, last night, 8 o'clock, one brother goes to another brother's house to help him with bees. Isn't it sweet? I mean, I just, my, as my eyes glance, my former boss is sitting in here. I just look, I go, wow. There's joy in the fellowship of the saints. If you came here and looked out, you could, you could go around the room and you could do the same thing. Unless you're not connected. But as I look, most of you are. There's one name here, Mark, who is significant. I'll just mention to you and you can, for homework, follow up. In Acts 15, Paul and Mark separated. There was great strife between the two of them. But they're reunited now. Paul lived forgiveness, right? He lived it. Later, he would write to Timothy, maybe some eight or nine years after this letter, pick up Mark and bring him with you. He's useful to me. Mark wasn't useful to Paul in Acts 15. He became useful again. Onesimus wasn't useful to Philemon when he ran away. He became useful again. And then we have the beautiful benediction, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your Spirit. Paul's pointing out that the only way to be able to forgive in a situation like this is to be empowered by the grace of God. He ends it by saying it's the grace of God that's going to allow you to forgive Onesimus. And this word, with your spirit, is in plural. So when it's being read to his wife, his son, and the church, 
He's saying all of you need to be empowered by the grace of God for any of this walk of faith to work. So if tomorrow you think, I'm just going to get up and I'm going to be a better Christian on my own, we will fail. He ends the letter by saying it's the grace of Christ. So what do we do with this letter now that we're at the end? Did Philemon forgive Onesimus? If we're one of them hip churches where you had buttons you could press and we could put it up on the screen, we could take a vote, but the Bible doesn't tell us. I I would assume that he did. My wife, who's been reading through 1 John daily, for a bit now, said he must have, because if he is who he is, as described by Paul, John says he would love his brother. It's one of the ways you know he's a Christian. I think she's right. I think he did forgive Philemon, Onesimus. But we don't know. He doesn't record it. So what do we do with the letter? Let me ask you this question. Do you have someone to forgive? you have an immediate, I don't think so, or an immediate, absolutely, I know exactly who you're referring to. Please remember the forgiveness is an act of the will. If it's the right thing to do, it's the right thing to do, so go and do it. Second, you need to be transformed. You need to be born again. Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus were all transformed by being born again. Do you need to be born again today? There's a problem What that question is, I can't come up with a creative, interesting, entertaining way for you to be interested in Christ because you're dead in your sin. You're blinded to the truth and only God can awaken you. And so it is by God's awakening to the good news of the gospel that you could be born again. It isn't that somehow I'm going to put three verses together and cause you to wake up. And you know if you're here and you're not saved. You know it. It is the gospel that will change your life. Let me give you the gospel in a verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Who made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, he was sinless, to be sin on our behalf. So if you're outside of faith, Jesus died on your behalf that you might become right with God. And if this is the day where your heart is beating a little faster than it was when you walked in, and you think, I need to be born again. While I'm rambling, you praying. Dear Lord, by grace, save my soul. Let me know you. Pray now. Come up afterwards. Say, Joe, I need to talk about this. Grab the person next to you. Say, I need to talk. Don't leave. Don't let today pass. So, Is there someone to forgive? Do you need to be transformed? Or what if your proclamation is, I have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's your proclamation. I have been transformed. Then I would say, let's walk as such. If we say it's true, let's walk as those who proclaim Christ as Lord and Savior. There is, lastly, this reality that if you are born again like Paul the murderer, Philemon, the slave slave owner, Onesimus, the criminal runaway. If you are born again, then you know by looking in the mirror, there are no helpless cases because you're born again. On Thursday morning at men's Bible study, I was struck by something as I considered the men sitting at the table. 
So I'm going to describe just half the table, long table, many men. I'm just going to walk around the table for you and describe what I saw. As I do, please keep on a parallel track these words that come from a song. They go like this, don't tell me he can't do it. I've seen families reunited. I've seen prodigals return. Right, some of you have broken families and prodigals, and you're like, you've quit. This song says, don't tell me he can't do it. I've seen families reunited, prodigals return. Don't tell me he can't do it. I've seen troubled souls delivered. I've seen addicts finally free. Don't tell me he can't do it. I think you get the point. This description of these few men is multiplied many times over in this place today. And I guess the last thing I want to leave you with is there are no hopeless cases. So I sat as a father of a prodigal son, a son who's walked away from faith, sitting next to a dad who's raising young children, sitting next to a dad who has two adult kids who were raised in the church that are not walking in faith, sitting next to a dad who has an adult son living in a car, basically homeless, sitting next to a dad whose adult son blames him for indoctrinating him in the Christian faith, sitting next to a dad whose daughter hadn't talked to him for years, who recently moved in back into their house in complete crisis. Paul, Philemon, Onesimus, no helpless cases. Each of those descriptions I just gave are men who have children that they wrestle with God over, and at times they think there's no hope. But there are no hopeless cases. Don't tell me he can't do it. Pray for the salvation of your prodigal sons and daughters, for the reconciliation of your family, your fractured family. Have the ability to forgive and the grace to love our neighbors when given the opportunity. There's great hope. You're proof of it. You're proof of the great hope of this gospel. Let's live like we believe it. Let's pray. Father God, we bow before you. So thankful for one little letter, 25 verses. We acknowledge that we skim through. There's so much more that you could have taught us here. But for that which you did, three men, lives transformed, the hope of forgiveness and reconciliation. Father God, we pray for our families the same. We so desire, Lord, for a Paul to reach our lost loved ones, to send them back to us that we might say, of course, welcome home. We so desire that, Lord, and we pray that you would give us the opportunity to live the act of the will and to forgive when called, to love the neighbor when called, that we might walk in a manner that brings glory to you, that you are glorified because those who proclaim Christ walk as such. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.